Chapter Eight, Part Two of The Life of Cicero, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume Two by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Eight: Caesar's Death, Part Two. Not long after Caesar's death, Cicero left Rome and spent the ensuing month travelling about among his different villas. On the 14th of April he writes to Atticus, declaring that whatever evil might befall him, he would find comfort in the Ides of March. In the same letter he calls Brutus and the others our heroes, and begs his friend to send him news, or, if not news, then a letter without news. In the next he again calls them his heroes, but adds that he can take no pleasure in anything but in the deed that had been done. Men are still praising the work of Caesar, and he laments that they should be so inconsistent. Though they laud those who had destroyed Caesar, at the same time they praise his deeds. In the same letter he tells Atticus that the people in all the villages are full of joy. It cannot be told how eager they are, how they run out to meet me, and to hear my accounts of what was done. But the Senate passes no decree. He speaks of going into Greece to see his son, whom he never lived to see again, telling him of letters from the lad from Athens, which he thinks, however, may be hypocritical, though he is comforted by finding their language to be clear. He has recovered his good humour, and can be jocose. One Cluvius has left him a property at Pitili, and the house has tumbled down. But he has sent for Chrysippus, an architect. But what are houses falling to him? He can thank Socrates and all his followers that they will have taught him to disregard such worldly things. Nevertheless, he has deemed it expedient to take the advice of a certain friend as to turning the tumble-down house into profitable shape. A little later he expresses his great disgust that Caesar, in the public speeches in Rome, should be spoken of as that great and most excellent man, and yet he had said but a few months since, in his oration for King Deotarus, in the presence of Caesar, that he looked only into his eyes, only into his face, that he regarded only him. The flattery and the indignant reprobation do in truth come very near upon each other, and induce us to ask whether the fact of having to live in the presence of royalty be not injurious to the moral man. Could any of us have refused to speak to Caesar with adulation, any of us whom circumstances compelled to speak to him? Power had made Caesar desirous of a mode of address, hardly becoming a man to give, or a man to receive. Does not the etiquette of to-day require from us certain courtesies of conversation, which I would call abject, were it not that etiquette requires them? Nevertheless, making the best allowance that I can for Cicero, the difference of his language within a month or two is very painful. In the letter above quoted, Octavius comes to him, and we can see how willing was the young aspirant to flatter him. He sees already that, in spite of the promised amnesty, there must be internecine feud. I shall have to go into the camp with young Sextus, Sextus Pompeius, or perhaps with Brutus, a prospect at my years most odious. Then he quotes two lines of Homer, altering a word. 
To you, my child, is not given the glory of war. Eloquence, charming eloquence, must be the weapon with which you will fight. We hear of his contemplated journey into Greece, under the protection of a free legation. He was going for the sake of his son, but would not people say that he went to avoid the present danger, and might it not be the case that he should be of service if he remained? We see that the old state of doubt is again falling upon him. I deomai troas. Otherwise he could go and make himself safe in Athens. There is a correspondence between him and Antony of which he sends copies to Atticus. Antony writes to him begging him to allow Sextus Clodius to return from his banishment. This Sextus had been condemned because of the riot on the death of his uncle in Milo's affair, and Antony wishes to have him back. Cicero replies that he will certainly accede to Antony's views. It had always been a law with him, he says, not to maintain a feeling of hatred against his humbler enemies. But in both these letters we see the subtlety and caution of the writers. Antony could have brought back Sextus without Cicero, and Cicero knew that he could do so. Cicero had no power over the law, but it suited Antony to write courteously a letter which might elicit an uncivil reply. Cicero, however, knew better, and answered it civilly. He writes to Tyro, telling him that he has not the slightest intention of quarrelling with his old friend Antony, and will write to Antony, but not till he shall have seen him, Tyro, showing on what terms of friendship he stands with his former slave, for Tyro had by this time been manumitted. He writes to Tyro quite as he might have written to a younger Atticus, and speaks to him of Atticus with all the familiarity of confirmed friendship. There must have been something very sweet in the nature of the intercourse which bound such a man as Cicero to such another as Tyro. Atticus applies to him, desiring him to use his influence respecting a certain question of importance as to Buthrotum. Buthrotum was a town in Epirus, opposite to the island of Corsaira, in which Atticus had an important interest. The lands about the place were to be divided and to be distributed to Roman soldiers, much, as we may suppose, to the injury of Atticus. He has earnestly begged the interference of Cicero for the protection of the Buthrotians, and Cicero tells him that he wishes he could have seen Antony on the subject, but that Antony is too much busied looking after the soldiers in the Campania. Cicero fails to have the wishes of Atticus carried out, and shortly the subject becomes lost in the general confusion. But the discussion shows of how much importance at the present moment Cicero's interference with Antony is considered. It shows also that up to this period, a few months previous to the envenomed hatred of the second Philippic, Antony and Cicero were presumed to be on terms of intimate friendship. The worship of Caesar has been commenced in Rome, and an altar had been set up to him in the Forum as to a god. Had Caesar, when he perished, been said to have usurped the sovereign authority, his body would have been thrown out as unworthy of noble treatment. Such treatment the custom of the Republic required. It had been allowed to be buried, and had been honoured, not disgraced. Now, on the spot where the funeral pile had been made, the altar was erected, and crowds of men clamoured round it, worshipping. That this was the work of Antony we cannot doubt. But Dolabella, Cicero's repudiated son-in-law, who in furtherance of a promise from Caesar had seized the consulship, 
was jealous of Antony, and caused the altar to be thrown down and the worshippers to be dispersed. Many were killed in the struggle, for, though the Republic was so jealous of the lives of the citizens as not to allow a criminal to be executed, without an expression of the voice of the entire people, any number might fall in a street tumult, and but little would be thought about it. Dolabella destroyed the altar, and Cicero was profuse in his thanks. For though Tullia had been divorced, and had since died, there was no cause for a quarrel. Divorces were so common that no family odium was necessarily created. Cicero was at this moment most anxious to get back from Dolabella his daughter's dowry. It was never repaid. Indeed, a time was quickly coming in which such payments were out of the question, and Dolabella soon took a side altogether opposed to the Republic, for which he cared nothing. He was bought by Antony, having been ready to be bought by any one. He went to Syria as governor before the end of the year, and at Smyrna, on his road, he committed one of those acts of horror on Trebonius, an adverse governor, in which the Romans of the day would revel when liberated from control. Cassius came to avenge his friend Trebonius, and Dolabella, finding himself worsted, destroyed himself. He had not progressed so far in corruption as Verres, because time had not permitted it, but that was the direction in which he was travelling. At the present moment, however, no praise was too fervid to be bestowed upon him by Cicero's pen. That turning of Caesar into a god was opposed to every feeling of his heart, both as to men and as to gods. A little further on we find him complaining of the state of things very grievously. That we should have feared this thing, and not have feared the other, meaning Caesar and Antony. He declares that he must often read, for his own consolation, his treatise on old age, then just written and addressed to Atticus. Old age is making me bitter, he says. I am annoyed at everything. But my life has been lived. Let the young look to the future. We here meet the name of Chirelia in a letter to his friend. She had probably been sent to make up the quarrel between him and his young wife Publilia. Nothing came of it, and it is mentioned only because Chirelia's name has been joined so often with that of Cicero by subsequent writers. In the whole course of his correspondence with Atticus I do not remember it to occur except in one or two letters at this period. I imagine that some story respecting the lady was handed down, and was published by Dio Cassius when the Greek historian found that it served his purpose to abuse Cicero. On June the 22nd he sent news to Atticus of his nephew. Young Quintus had written home to his father to declare his repentance. He had been in receipt of money from Antony, and had done Antony's dirty work. He had been Antony Dextella, Antony's right hand, according to Cicero and had quarrelled absolutely with his father and his uncle. He now expresses his sorrow, and declares that he would come himself at once, but that there might be danger to his father. And there is money to be expected, if he will only wait. "'Did you ever hear of a worse knave?' Cicero adds. Probably not, but yet he was able to convince his father and his uncle and some time afterwards absolutely offered to prosecute Antony for stealing the public money out of the treasury. He thought, as did some others, that the course of things was going against Antony. 
As a consequence of this, he was named in the proscriptions and killed with his father. In the same letter, Cicero consults Atticus as to the best mode of going to Greece. Brundisium is the usual way, but he has been told by Tyro that there are soldiers in the town. He is now at Arpinum on his journey, and receives a letter from Brutus inviting him back to Rome to see the games given by Brutus. He is annoyed to think that Brutus should expect this. These shows are now only honourable to him who is bound to give them, he says. I am not bound to see them, and to be present would be dishonourable. Then comes his parting with Atticus, showing a demonstrative tenderness, foreign to the sternness of our northern nature. That you should have wept when you had parted from me has grieved me greatly. Had you done it in my presence, I should not have gone at all. Nonis Iulis, he exclaims. The name of July had already come into use, the name which has been in use ever since, the name of the man who had now been destroyed. The idea distresses him. Shall Brutus talk of July? It seems that some advertisement had been published as to his games in which the month was so called. Writing from one of his villas in the south, he tells Atticus that his nephew has again been with him, and has repented him of all his sins. I think that Cicero never wrote anything vainer than this. He has been so changed, he says, by reading some of my writings which I happen to have by me, and by my words and precepts, that he is just such a citizen as I would have him. Could it be that he should suppose that one whom he had a few days since described as the biggest knave he knew should be so changed by a few words, well written and well pronounced? Young Quintus must, in truth, have been a clever knave. In the same letter Cicero tells us that Tyro had collected about seventy of his letters with a view to publication. We have at present over seven hundred written before that day. Just as he is starting, he gives his friend a very wide commission. By your love for me, do manage my matters for me. I have left enough to pay everything that I owe, but it will happen, as it often does, that they who owe me will not be punctual. If anything of that kind should happen, only think of my character. Put me right before the world by borrowing, or even selling, if it be necessary. This is not the language of a man in distress, but of one anxious that none should lose a shilling by him. He again thinks of starting from Brundisium, and promises when he has arrived there instantly to begin a new work. He has sent his De Gloria to Atticus, a treatise which we have lost. We should be glad to know how he treated this most difficult subject. We are astonished at his fecundity and readiness. He was now nearly sixty-three, and as he travels about the country he takes with him all the adjuncts necessary for the writing of treatises such as he composed at this period of his life. His Topica, containing Aristotelian instructions as to a lawyer's work, he put together on board ship immediately after this for the benefit of Trebatius, to whom it had been promised. July had come, and at last he resolved to sail from Pompeii, and to coast round to Sicily. He lands for a night at Velia, where he finds Brutus, with whom he has an interview. Then he writes a letter to Trebatius, who had there a charming villa, bought, no doubt, with Gallic spoils. 
he is reminded of his promise, and going on to Regium, writes his Topica, which he sends to Trebatius from that place. Thence he went across to Syracuse, but was afraid to stay there, fearing that his motions might be watched, and that Antony would think that he had objects of state in his journey. He had already been told that some attributed his going to a desire to be present at the Olympian Games, but the first notion seems to have been that he had given the Republic up as lost, and was seeking safety elsewhere. From this we are made to perceive how closely his motivations were watched, and how much men thought of them. From Syracuse he started for Athens, which place, however, he was never doomed to see again. He was carried back to Leucopetra on the continent, and though he made another effort, he was, he says, again brought back. There, at the villa of his friend Valerius, he learned tidings which induced him to change his purpose, and hurry off to Rome. Brutus and Cassius had published a decree of the Senate, calling all the senators, and especially the consulars, to Rome. There was reason to suppose that Antony was willing to relax his pretensions. They had strenuously demanded his attendance, and whispers were heard that he had fled from the difficulties of the times. When I heard this, I at once abandoned my journey, with which, indeed, I had never been well pleased. Then he enters into a long disquisition with Atticus as to the advice which had been given to him, both by Atticus and by Brutus, and he says some hard words to Atticus. But he leaves an impression on the reader's mind that Brutus had so disturbed him by what had passed between them at Velia, that from that moment his doubts as to going, which had always been strong, had overmastered him. It was not the winds at Leucopetra that hindered his journey, but the taunting words which Brutus had spoken. It was suggested to him that he was deserting his country. The reproach had been felt by him to be heavy, for he had promised to Atticus that he would return by the first of January, yet he could not but feel that there was something in it of truth. The very months during which he would be absent would be the months of danger. Indeed, looking out upon the political horizon then, it seemed as though the nearest months, those they were then passing, would be the most dangerous. If Antony could be got rid of, be made to leave Italy, there might be something for an honest senator to do, a man with consular authority, a something which might not jeopardise his life. When men now call a politician of those days a coward for wishing to avoid the heat of the battle, they hardly think what it is for an old man to leave his retreat and rush into the forum, and there encounter such a one as Antony, and such soldiers as were his soldiers. Cicero, who had been brave enough in the emergencies of his career, and had gone about his work sometimes regardless of his life, no doubt thought of all this. It would be pleasant to him again to see his son, and to look upon the rough doings of Rome from amidst the safety of Athens. But when his countrymen told him that he had not as yet done enough, when Brutus with his cold bitter words rebuked him for going, then his thoughts turned round on the quick pivot on which they were balanced, and he hurried back to the fight. He travelled at once up to Rome, which he reached on the last of August, and there received a message from Antony demanding his presence in the Senate on the next day. He had been greeted on his journey once again by the enthusiastic welcome of his countrymen, who looked to receive some especial advantage from his honesty and patriotism. Once again he was made proud by the clamours of a trusting people. 
but he had not come to Rome to be Antony's puppet. Antony had some measure to bring before the Senate in honour of Caesar, which it would not suit Cicero to support, or to oppose. He sent to say that he was tired after his journey, and would not come. Upon this the critics deal hardly with him, and call him a coward. With an incredible pusillanimity, says M. de Rosoir, Cicero excused himself, alleging his health and the fatigue of his voyage. He pretended that he was too tired to be present, says Mr. Long. It appears to me that they who have read Cicero's works with the greatest care have become so enveloped by the power of his words as to expect from them an unnatural weight. If a politician of to-day, finding that it did not suit him to appear in the House of Commons on a certain evening, and that it would best become him to allow a debate to pass without his presence, were to make such an excuse, would he be treated after the same fashion? Pusillanimity and pretense, in regard to those philippics in which he seems to have courted death by every harsh word that he uttered. The reader who has begun to think so must change his mind, and be prepared as he progresses to find quite another fault with Cicero. Impetuous, self-confident, rash, throwing down the gauge with internecine fury, striving to crush with his words the man who had the command of the legions of Rome, sticking at nothing which could inflict a blow, forcing men by his descriptions to such contempt of Antony that they should be induced to leave the stronger party, lest they too should incur something of the wrath of the orator. That they will find to be the line which Cicero adopted, and the demeanour he put on, during the next twelve months. He thundered with his Philippics through Rome, addressing now the Senate, and now the people, with a hardihood which you may condemn as being unbecoming one so old, who should have been taught equanimity by experience, but pusillanimity and pretense will not be the offences you will bring against him. Antony, not finding that Cicero had come at his call, declared in the Senate that he would send his workmen to dig him out from his house. Cicero alludes to this on the next day, without passion. Antony was not present, and in this speech he expresses no bitterness of anger. It should hardly have been named one of the Philippics, which title might well have commenced with the second. The name, it should be understood, has been adopted from a jocular allusion by Cicero to the Philippics of Demosthenes, made in a letter to Brutus. We have at least the reply of Brutus, if indeed the letter be genuine, which is much to be doubted. But he had no purpose of affixing his name to them. For many years afterwards they were called Antoninae, and the first general use of the term by which we know them has probably been comparatively modern. The one name does as well as another, but it is odd that speeches from Demosthenes should have given a name to others so well known as these made by Cicero against Antony. Plutarch, however, mentions the name, saying that it had been given to the speeches by Cicero himself. In this, the first, he is ironically reticent as to Antony's violence and unpatriotic conduct. Antony was not present, and Cicero tells his hearers with a pleasant joke that to Antony it may be allowed to be absent on the score of ill-health, although the indulgence had been refused to him. Antony is his friend, and why had Antony treated him so roughly? Was it unusual for senators to be absent? 
Was Hannibal at the gate, or were they dealing for peace with Pyrrhus, as was the case when they had brought the old blind Appius down to the house? Then he comes to the question of the hour, which was nominally the sanctioning as law those acts of Caesar's which he had decreed by his own will before his death. When a tyrant usurps power for a while, and is then deposed, no more difficult question can be debated. Is it not better to take the law as he leaves it, even though the law has become a law illegally, than encounter all the confusion of retrograde action? Nothing could have been more iniquitous than some of Sulla's laws, but Cicero had opposed their abrogation. But here the question was one not of Caesar's laws, but of decrees subsequently made by Antony, and palmed off upon the people as having been found among Caesar's papers. Soon after Caesar's death a decision had been obtained by Antony in favour of Caesar's laws or acts, and hence had come these impudent forgeries under the guise of which Antony could cause what writings he chose to be made public. "'I think that Caesar's acts should be maintained,' says Cicero, "'not as being in themselves good, for that no one can assert. I wish that Antony were present here, without his usual friends,' he adds, alluding to his armed satellites. He would tell us after what manner he would maintain those acts of Caesar's. Are they to be found in notes and scraps and small documents brought forward by one witness, or not brought forward at all, but only told to us? And shall those which he engraved in bronze, and which he wished to be known as the will of the people and as perpetual laws, shall they go for nothing? Here was the point in dispute. The decree had been voted soon after Caesar's death, giving the sanction of the Senate to his laws. For peace this had been done, as the best way out of the difficulty which oppressed the state. But it was intolerable that under this sanction Antony should have the power of bringing forth new edicts day after day, while the very laws which Caesar had passed were not maintained. What better law was there, or more often demanded in the best days of the Republic, than that law, passed by Caesar, under which the provinces were to be held by the praetors only for one year, and by the consuls for not more than two? But this law is abolished. So it is thus that Caesar's acts are to be maintained? Antony, no doubt, and his friends, having an eye to the fruition of the provinces, had found among Caesar's papers, or said they had found, some writing to suit their purpose. All things to be desired were to be found among Caesar's papers. The banished are brought back from banishment. The right of citizenship is given not only to individuals, but to whole nations and provinces. Exceptions from taxations are granted, by the dead man's voice." Antony had begun probably with some one or two more modest forgeries, and had gone on, strengthened in impudence by his own success, till Caesar dead was like to be worse to them than Caesar living. The whole speech is dignified, patriotic, and bold, asserting with truth that which he believed to be right, but never carried into invective or dealing with expressions of anger. It is very short, but I know no speech of his more closely to its purpose. I can see him now, with his toga round him, as he utters the final words. I have lived perhaps long enough, both as to length of years and the glory I have won. What little may be added 
shall be not for myself, but for you and for the Republic. The words thus spoken became absolutely true. End of chapter 8